As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So you can start. Go ahead. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 87th episode of The Professional. <laughs> yep, you can get through it. We're just going to keep going. The Professional what? <laughs> Book Nerds Podcast. <laughs> presented, this is Jill. Who's it presented by? <laughs> is it Overdrive? It's presented by Overdrive. Guys, we're, Jill and I are both having a day. We are having a day. We're, both, we're having what should be mental health days, but we're both in the office. <laughs> We are. So. so this is the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. Yes, it is. And we're, we're going to make this intro real quick because both of us are can't e- we can't even speak wordsings right now. We're struggling. Uh, this is an episode with Min Jin Lee, who I interviewed at the American Library Association. She's really wonderful. Uh, I It was one of those authors who now I think I'm becoming friends with. We're friends on Facebook. It's no big deal. Um so yeah, I think you'll really enjoy listening to her. She has written two novels now. Her second one is called Pachinko. She talks about this during the interview, but she writes really slow, as she says, which I don't think is true. She just writes very long books, and they're very well thought out. But <laughs> this is her second book. Her first one is called Free Food for Millionaires, and it was a bestseller. So um, this one took her about seven years to write. So it's really good. I think people will really like it. Jill, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do it? They can find us on Twitter at pro <laughs> you're saying it like i am now <laughs> sorry they can find us on twitter at pro book nerds mm-hmm. and or just search for professional book nerds on twitter you'll find us you can also email us at professional book nerds at overdrive.com yes and we've already seen some people doing this from yes. the last episode so thank you thank you but if you want to get some book recommendations from us we're going to do a reader advisory uh episode soon so shoot us an email with what you're currently reading we've actually i I saw an email that someone told us what they're reading digitally, what they're reading physically, and what they're reading as an audiobook. So, well done. Good job. We also had someone who said they read a lot of self-published, which is fun, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, lots of stuff. And that'll align with someone who's coming on the, on the yep. podcast pretty soon. So, shoot us those emails. Thank you, guys. It's awesome seeing your feedback. And, yeah, we will 100% give as many recommendations out in a very near episode as we can from those. So, shoot us an email. Um, anything else? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not today. Nope. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Adam from Team Overdrive. And today I'm joined by Min Jin Lee, the national bestselling author of Free Food for Millionaires, which was the number one book sense pick, a New York Times editor's choice selection, and a top 10 novel of the year pick by the Times of London, NPR's Fresh Air, and USA Today. 
Her latest novel, Pachinko, comes out in February. Min, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Thank you, Adam, for having me. Absolutely. So would you mind just kicking us off by giving our listeners an introduction to Pachinko? Absolutely. Pachinko is a novel of four generations. Mm-hmm. It's a historical novel, yes. and it follows one family, mm-hmm. um, Sanja, who actually moves to Japan by accident. Mm-hmm. It wasn't her intention. Right. And during the colonial era, many Jap- many Koreans went to Japan for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. So, but the reason why my character goes to Japan was because she gets knocked up <laughs> by a married man. Yes, she does. <laughs> and. Um, she actually ends up staying there because history allows her to stay there and also prevents her to go back home. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, I was joking with some of our, uh, some of my coworkers. I sometimes cringe when I see a novel described as like a tour de force or sweeping. But I just don't like when people use those giant words sure. for things. But it absolutely fits here. Your book oh. has all of the, like you mentioned these different generations and it spans lifetimes and. So did you always want to feature these entire generations? Did you kind of plan in, at the beginning, like, I'm going to have... No, not so no. much? No, actually, as a matter of fact, I've been working on this book since 1989. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. 1989, because I'm a really fast writer. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> yes, so if anybody ever feels slow, they can just go, but I'm not as slow as men. <laughs> Well, so I started in 89, and um, I had a full manuscript mm-hmm. in 2007. Yeah. And it was really actually based on one generation. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to Japan, I did all my research right. at libraries. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> and um, I learned that I was totally wrong, mm-hmm. and I did all these interviews, mm-hmm. and then I went back to the library, and I threw out the entire manuscript, and I started again. Oh, my God. So from 2007 until now, it's mm-hmm. a brand new iteration, and now it's four generations. That, okay. That in and of itself, when I hear authors say things like, I threw away a whole manuscript, or I'll have authors tell us, oh, they cut 70,000 words from my book. What is just, what is that? For me, that sounds like soul crushing, like to realize you need to take a whole manuscript. So just psychologically. This is my new soul, by the way. My other souls were all crushed. I was going to say, psychologically, as an author, what is that like when you realize like, oh no, I have to do this completely differently? Like. You feel like an idiot. Uh Like, I feel like an idiot. I wish I could learn how to write faster. I wish I knew how to work smarter. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know how to do it any other way. I've thrown away several manuscripts. It's not just this one. Oh, my gosh. I know. Do do you remember how many words or how many pages the manuscript was that you... 400. Man, I feel... That's 400 published, so it would be like 500 or 550. Oh, my God. But several of those. But That blows my mind. Okay, so what was your writing process like once you were in Japan, and you said from 2007 on, was, let me, were you trying to set a word count for yourself? Were you multitasking while, like, teaching or speaking? Because I know you've done a lot of different things. So what was your writing process like for this iteration of Pachinko? (laughs) Um, I did 40 to 50 interviews Mm -hmm. of actually Korean Japanese people. Sure. And once I met them, I realized that all of my research was totally wrong because I ended up feeling very left of center. Mm -hmm. Like I'm I'm a very progressive person. Yeah. So then I had this kind of victim mentality. I was like, you know what? What happened to the Korean Japanese was so incredibly wrong. And Mm -hmm. it was. It's absolutely wrong and it's still wrong today. Mm -hmm. However, when I met the people, they didn't seem like victims at all. Right. They were so fierce. Uh Uh-huh and tough and resilient yeah. and I felt like such a ding dong <laughs> I was like oh 
you guys are really different than what I had imagined. Yeah. Like, I kind of saw them as being morally pure, mm-hmm. when in fact, they were really complicated. Right. Some of them were not nice, and uh-huh. some of them were really amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, I met a man who was um, the son of a prostitute and a pimp. Okay. And when I interviewed that him, yeah. and his attitude was, what's, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why do you have an issue with this? Yeah. This is just the way things are, because... Right. That's his life. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, I thought it was so sympathetic and mm-hmm. sad, and yeah. his attitude was he was very defended. Mm-hmm. And I totally, that makes sense to me now, yeah. now that I've met him. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was one of the questions I wanted to ask is all of your characters, as they go through their lives in this novel, they, they, it seems to be, I don't want to say like it's an acceptance of their, their station in life, but they seem to have an understanding of where they are in society and their life what's going on with them you know they some of the people while struggling with abject poverty they're not just they they see people who are richer than them and they don't like pout or they just kind of accept this is what it is and this might just be like in my mind like a western culture versus eastern culture thing but is that kind of acceptance and not like i said acceptance i think is the wrong word but this better understanding is this is that more of like a korean and a japanese cultural thing? I might be overthinking this a lot. No, no, you're not but, overthinking at all, and I think it's something that we have to think about all the time, right. because I think that our class stations in America change, mm-hmm. but I think in America we don't like to talk about class, because it makes everybody feel really uncomfortable. Right. And I think that people pass all the time in America as being wealthier than they are, Yeah. and I see that all the time. Absolutely. And that always kind of freaked me out, because when I was in college, I didn't know what whiteness was, because mm-hmm. all my friends were... Irish American or yeah. Italian American or Greek American but people are basically one or two generations away from something mm-hmm. not like six yeah and then I went I went to college and people were it was like white and black it was very binary mm-hmm. and what, of course when you have conversations with people you realize no that's not true right you know one grandparent is three generations Irish another parent is English or something <laughs> yeah. but there's something there but I think um going back to your question about East versus West and acceptance of a certain station in life, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people in America who mm-hmm. feel like things aren't going to get that much better. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're seeing right now in the polarization of this country. Yeah. People aren't happy about it. Mm-hmm. And I think, and it might just be because things like social media, people don't want to work for the improvements that they get. Now. I feel like a lot of times you'll see people shouting into the internet you know saying like oh it's not fair that such and such has got something that I don't and um, and it tends to be the people who complain they get their voices heard unfortunately so maybe it's just me like I said seeing those people so often on on Twitter and all over the place that are so unaccepting and unwilling to work to kind of improve their stations whereas in Pachinko that's all the characters do is work hard to kind of they, they deserve the good that happens to them when the good does happen to them. I, I, <laughs> I think what's really weird about work mm-hmm. is that sometimes people work really, really hard and still don't get that far. Mm-hmm. And I think I did see that too because maybe the expectation, what I really like about America, mm-hmm. because I'm, I wasn't born here, Right. one of the things that I really like about America is that if you do work, you, do, you can marginally improve. Mm-hmm. You can. And some people move, like, move dramatically. Right. And it's kind of cool to see it. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right about social media is that nowadays we really have a greater understanding of what other people have. Mm-hmm. And that must be very frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> because money is not tied to always um, 
moral virtue. Absolutely. In fact, it probably <laughs> kind of rarely is, actually. I, I tend to think, yeah. Right, and I think it's uh, very upsetting, and I think that's what we're seeing with all the anger that's on social media, uh-huh. is we're really furious that why is somebody powerful? Mm-hmm. And also, why is it okay to brag about, let's say, having a 30-carat diamond ring? Uh-huh. You know, like, all these things yeah. are happening right now, so... We're seeing a lot of dissension, dissatisfaction, and I do understand that. Uh-huh. Or perhaps a gold-plated hotel that they right, <laughs> or a gold-plated like, hotel, an ivory, literally an ivory tower. Anyway, um, I was like, tell the lot of talking political things, then we shy away from it. Um, something that I really, really love about Pachinko is you give almost every character we meet some sort of closure, um, like. You tend to provide, if even only for a paragraph at a time, you kind of give the narrative voice to those characters and it kind of jumps from person to person and it's this really beautiful flow where a lot of times you'll read a book and you'll wonder, I wonder what happened to those ancillary characters. And it feels like you, in almost every circumstance, took the character and said, here's what happened to them or you would let us know what later in life they would always think about. Um, was this, again, same thing, was this something from a narrative voice, something you wanted to do from the beginning, or did it kind of happen naturally? That's very important to me, mm-hmm. because my training ground is a 19th century omniscient novel, mm-hmm. which means that every single character must close. Right. <laughs> and the 19th century novels were really working with an Aristotelian understanding mm-hmm. of storytelling, mm-hmm. which means there has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. There has to be a recognition, uh-huh. and there has to be a reversal. Yeah. So because I'm a foreigner in some ways, mm-hmm. I feel like I follow those rules because those rules make me really happy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think there are a lot of authors who want to break those rules, and that's absolutely fine because certain readers really want those kinds of books. Mm-hmm. But my books, you are going to see characters go from beginning, yeah. middle, and an end. And the way that, and the thing that I really <laughs> and I diagram. To, yeah, and, I okay. Do. So you did kind of. I diagram. Good. I, I index cards. I do all that like nerdy stuff. And I will the way you the way you do it though it flows really well. I was actually joking with my wife. I was reading a novel recently and it was chopped up into a couple different quote unquote books in the novel. And the first book would have a certain character that was the narrator. And then you just kind of like get into the flow of how they speak and how everything's written. And then it would end abruptly. And then you'd be 25 years in the future and there'd be a completely different person, which is okay. It just took me I felt like I was literally reading four different stories whereas yours you do this amazing job where it feels natural and and it just it does it just the whole thing I I have told you before we started recording that I was going to gush about your novel because it's so I really appreciate it now gush away okay (laughs) something else I I work at home it's very quiet no one ever says anything nice okay so that's the thing as an author is it really weird to spend countless hours isolated writing these stories and then kind of get put through a car wash of all right do an interview and go on this panel and get in front of a bunch of people and talk about this thing like is that do you ever get used to that as an author well I've only produced two books <laughs> <laughs> so I think that I'm happy to be in the car wash and yeah. also I know that there are so many books out there mm-hmm. there are at least what 300,000 books that are published yeah every year every year yeah it's crazy I don't even know how many of those are novels mm-hmm. and there's some really great writers in America yeah and then we also have foreign books mm-hmm. So whenever you get some attention for the work that you've been working on, uh-huh. it's just really lucky. And you do like panel. You, you do speaking engagements I do a while lot. you're. Yeah, I was gonna say I've seen I, you I do. I lecture a lot about literature, right? Because it's something that I really love, mm-hmm. and I really love the craft of writing. Yes. So I, I talk a lot with kids. I, a lot of college kids. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm wondering about Pachinko, how much of it comes from your own life experiences? Because I saw you do a, a talk with, I think with Juno Diaz, where you talk yes. about some people have told you you're too Korean, some people tell you you're not Korean enough. <laughs> and the idea of being both the right nationality and the right amount of a nationality is really prevalent in your novel. So is this some, did you kind of have life experiences almost maybe tangentially like in this story? Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I was knocked up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> by a married man. I know, by a married man when I was yeah. 16. <laughs> and I actually have a secret love life. Yeah. Uh-huh. No. Uh, <laughs> I actually have a lot of aspects of it in the emotional part. Like, it's free food. A lot of people think that's my autobiographical novel. Mm-hmm. When actually, it isn't at all. Not so much, yeah. I've actually never smoked cigarettes uh-huh. or played golf or <laughs> uh, witnessed a three-way. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's chapter four. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, For anyone but, who wants to skip ahead. Anyone who wants to skip ahead. They're like, oh yeah, I really like chapter four. It's like, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> but that was all based on interviews. Mm-hmm. So I do all these interviews. However, the thing that's really, I think, emotionally true uh-huh. is that for free food, I felt so much shame yeah. at having taken such a long time. Mm-hmm. And I, I failed at so many things. Yeah. And I felt so stupid for having quit as being a lawyer uh-huh. to work. And with Pachinko, I think this is a book about parenting. Mm-hmm. This book is a lot right, about yeah. parenting. Absolutely. And how do you parent when the world is unfair? Mm-hmm. How do you parent when, no matter how hard you try, yeah. world leaders are just making humongous mistakes? Right. What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I thought, you know, even if history does fail us, Hi, how are you doing? we still have to adapt. Mm-hmm. We still have to, you know, show up to work. Right. And be a decent human being. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. I. You're absolutely right. The whole there's so many parts in there. I don't have children myself. I have two dogs, which super doesn't count. Um, but it does I, count. Well, they're much easier. They are both much easier and more difficult. They never learn. They don't learn how to speak. But um, I, I would go through these experiences reading Pachinko, being like, I wonder how I would go through that and what I would do. So I think you're absolutely. Well, what right. would you do to protect your wife? I mean, That's right. very true. Yeah. I mean, there are things in this book where I think, like, what would you do to protect your wife, your children, your family, mm-hmm. your sense of integrity about who you are? Right. Like, would you walk away from a job because they thought that you were unacceptable the way you are? Right. And would you lie? It mm-hmm. depends. Like, maybe if you had to make rent, mm-hmm. you might lie. Yeah. And I think, to me, like, when I was younger, I used to be much more black and white, mm-hmm. and now I'm kind of like, gosh, if my husband was sick, what would I do? Right. That's really interesting. Um, so getting kind of along the same lines of nationality being very prevalent in Pachinko, um, what are your thoughts on novels written today by diverse and immigrant authors? Do you think they're more available now than they used to be? Um, I guess just maybe what are your thoughts on, on these different voices in the literary community? You know, it's really funny because it's a funny question that you ask because I think about this all the time mm-hmm. because I know so many writers of color. Right. And also, I get sent so many galleys mm-hmm. and I read them, and some of them are amazing. Yeah. And some of them are like, eh. right. <laughs> and, I, and I can't say every single one of them are good. In the same way, if I read, you know, books by white writers, right. are they? It's all. It's all mixed. Right. But I do think that it's a better time to be a writer of color mm-hmm. than it was last year yeah. and the year before. In the same way, it's better to be able to be gay today than it was even two years ago. Like I have right. many friends who are married, mm-hmm. you know, who are lesbians and gay, yeah. which that didn't happen. Exactly. 
three years ago. Yeah, it was. I don't. Was it? I think it was it two years ago that the Supreme Court. We were actually well, at every state's different, right? Well, for yeah, the the right. US, when the U.S. Um, when the change when the Supreme Court did it, I think it was two because we were actually landing in San Francisco at the American Library Association. We landed in San Francisco when that entire thing happened and it was like the gay pride parade was that weekend it was like the greatest thing to see that ever it was really spectacular right um, it was yeah i mean that's incredible mm-hmm. it was a really great moment to see um okay so actually something i was one i'm really lucky we were talking about this before just like you i get sent galleys all the time by publishers and the majority of them <laughs> I, I do i get i get sent so many and i'm so blessed because they're usually incredibly high quality content but for people who aren't as fortunate as us that don't get sent books for free from publishers if someone wanted to discover some other korean or asian writers maybe do you have some suggestions or people oh, that you would you would have them start with yeah i think uh, well it's interesting because some Asian American writers are now writing things that ha- don't have Asian American content mm-hmm. or Asian content. Yeah. So, for example, like Alexander Chi, mm-hmm. Queen of the Night, right. a terrific book, mm-hmm. has no Asian content, but he's an amazing writer. Uh, I just finished reading Jin Jung Yun's mm-hmm. book called Shelter. Okay, that was terrific, and I recommended that also for um, for England mm-hmm. because it's published there as well. Yeah. Jung Yun's Shelter, Alexander Chi's um, Queen of the Night. Mm-hmm. What else? Chris Lee's book, mm-hmm. How I Became North Korean. Yeah. Terrific. Absolutely. <laughs> Is that That's good? impressive for putting you on the spot. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I always think of us being like, off top of your head, tell us a book. You know, that was great. Um, so growing up, what types of books did you read? I've had authors uh, of diverse backgrounds tell me that they struggled growing up to find themselves in the books that they read. Did you feel the same way when you were growing up or were you able no. to kind of find content? No, actually I, I wasn't thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Because you know, because I was born somewhere else, yeah. I wasn't thinking I had to always be represented. Mm-hmm. And of course like finally, also you know, there were almost no Korean American writers. Right. So I, if I was only trying to read that, mm-hmm. I would be illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> Which you certainly are not. But I mean, I think it would break my heart. Like, if you were Charlotte Bronte uh-huh. and you wrote Jane Eyre, right? Like, were you thinking that the only people who are going to read you are English? Yeah. And I think nobody loves Jane Eyre more than me. <laughs> so I always kind of think it's kind of cool how writers can connect despite the fact that we're different. Yeah. And I think readers are meant to be anywhere. I've had people. I had an older gentleman who's white mm-hmm. in upstate New York tell me that he's Casey, my main character of Free Food. Uh-huh. He's like, my father ran a laundromat. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, you're Casey. <laughs> yeah, that's so, I, I love that line of thinking because you're absolutely right. I, I always, I'm always, con- I struggle with asking authors about, well, what are your thoughts on diverse authors versus not quote-unquote non-diverse in my mind everyone can be a diverse author you can write you could like you said you could be an african-american lesbian writing about a straight white person or you could be a straight white person writing about an african-american lesbian and everything in between so i really like that line of thinking of as a writer you have to realize not just people who look just like you are going to read your books so i think no, I, I, would like no, I would have nothing to read yeah. i would have very little to read especially as a child mm-hmm. And in college, the book that changed my life is a book called Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. Mm-hmm. And that book changed my life. Yeah. A black lesbian woman writer mm-hmm. who died of liver cancer. Mm-hmm. She taught at City yeah. College. And if I hadn't read those collections of essays, mm-hmm. I don't think I would feel entitled to tell stories. Yeah. So 
Was she thinking of me? I don't think so. <laughs> maybe, 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 I don't know. Um, along those lines, you're talking about telling stories. You recently, for Lit Hub, you wrote about your experience leading up to your first book. Uh, for our listeners who may not be aware, maybe even just for aspiring writers, because it's very much a labor of love, but can you maybe walk them through your experience? Because sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, I wrote my first manuscript and it got picked up right away, but you had a long journey. That is not my story. Right. No. So I quit being a lawyer when I was 1995, mm-hmm. and I was... I guess 26 years old. Yeah. And then I published Free Food for Millionaires, which is actually my third manuscript Uh as my first novel Uh in 2007. And so in between those times... I was taking a lot of cheap classes. Because in Manhattan, you can't actually take really good classes for about $200. So I would take all these classes at nighttime. And at the same time, I was really sick with my liver disease. So that's the other reason why Audre Lorde was always sort of spoke to me because she and I had a similar liver disease. Right. And I was told, in, um, so I got this thing as a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. I was a hepatitis B chronic carrier. Right. And then I got really sick in college and I got really sick again mm-hmm. when my son was born a couple of years later and I had liver cirrhosis. So. One of the things that's been very clarifying about being ill, and by the way, I'm very well now. Yeah, I'm totally it, healed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like holding my breath reading this article. I was like, oh my gosh, is she still, is she still sick? But I know. So, so I'm glad totally you're okay yeah. now. Uh, I got cured when my son was about five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was nine, 2003. Yeah. And But from 2003, and it started in 1985, I had this sort of sentence that would say... You're going to die pretty early. Yeah. And I guess that did give me the courage to quit being a lawyer. It right. gave me the courage to say, well, if this is my last breath, then what am I going to do? And mm-hmm. that doesn't sound very Pollyannish because I was feeling really, I was really despondent. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now I'm really happy because I'm with you. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and I finished oh. my book and I published it. Yeah, I was going to say, that part should make you happy. I appreciate <laughs> well, your yeah, kind I mean, words. But, but... Like, this is kind of a cool moment yeah. as opposed to that entire time waiting and working and wondering like why am I doing this yeah. am I crazy yeah. well I'm glad that you're here with me Thank as you. well <laughs> uh, so towards the end of our podcast we like to do nine rapid fire questions sure. that we call the nerd nine because we're dorks um, so the first one is what's the last book you read oh, oh Andrew Solomon's uh, Far and Away nice. what's your favorite place to read in my office that's perfect uh, do you have a guilty pleasure? Like mine is, uh, I post so many pictures of my dogs on Instagram. Like almond way butter. too many. Uh, oh, nice. I can eat so much almond butter, it would shock you. <laughs> I, there's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Trader Joe's. It's a grocery store. They have cookie cookie butter. It's like it's like a drug. Oh. No, it should right be illegal. There. It should be illegal. It's right, oh, I'm right there with you. Uh, <laughs> what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Oh. I'd like to go to Berlin. Do you have a favorite holiday? Thanksgiving. Do you have a favorite movie? Uh, Cinema Paradiso. Nice. Uh, Are you a cat person or a dog person? Dog. Do you have a favorite food other than almond butter? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big soup person. Okay. Do you have a favorite kind of soup? I do. I like sundubu chicken, which is a Korean soup. Okay. Like a tofu based soup. Uh, so, okay, I I would get down on some of that. It's so good. That sounds really good. Um, and then the last one, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you choose? 
Oh, George Eliot. That's a good, ooh, that's a really good one. Oh yeah, done. Perfect. The last question for you, what do you hope readers take away from reading Pachinko? Accepted. Oh, that's perfect. Min, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.